From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams, and I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Mitch Whitus. You're listening to, as I said, another episode of My Capital Idea with the Defenders of Capitalism Project. Say hello, Mitch. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. So this was an idea that we had for our podcast. It's kind of hot in the news right now, talking about this whole artificial intelligence. And if champions of free markets and capitalism have anything to say about that, uh, artificial intelligence, it seems like the most obvious example or most famous example that people are becoming familiar with right now is this whole chat GPT. But there's other forms of artificial intelligence, right? Do you know anything about what that? What does ChatGPT stand for in the first place? What does that mean? I'm sure there's some acronym to it, Mike. I don't know. I don't either. AI, though, is artificial intelligence, right? And it's like they're talking about having uh, machine learning or computers that actually can learn algorithms that can actually you know, generate more ideas themselves based on natural human language, I think is the, the term they use. Um, and ChatGPT4 is the newest iteration. It's pretty amazing. I don't know if you've played with it or not. I, don't, I haven't used the, the paid version I know that there's a lot of people now paying, I think, 20 bucks a month for the chat GPT-4. I've just used the free one. Yeah, I have not used the paid version either, um, but I've used a few other AI tools as well. So the, the website says it can generate, edit, iterate with users on a creative and technical writing tasks, such as composing songs, writing screenplays, or learning the user's writing style. And then it's been in the news a little bit, but there's now universities are trying to to somehow use detection software because college students are just uh, letting this program uh, write their term papers, right? Yeah. There's there's the issue of plagiarism, obviously. I don't know if they call it plagiarism. If you have a computer that's generating your term paper for you, is it really plagiarism? Yeah, maybe cheating, I guess, (laughs) would be the operative word. Yeah. So the thing can accept images as inputs and generate captions, cl- uh, classifications, and analysis. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. I I um, have played with it myself. I I was writing actually a condolence note for someone, and I was trying to come up with words. You know, I was trying to like, okay, what's the best way to to actually? This is a client who passed away, and uh, their heirs. I was trying to write something to. And it came up with some really, you know, some pretty thoughtful things as far as my voice. I've played with it from that standpoint. And my view is that it, it's better than Google, right? It actually is more on point than trying to come up with from something from Google. Well, and it's searching Google for you and synthesizing information for you. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is better. And I think what's amazing, you know, with now with ChatGPT4, you can give it a picture of like cooking ingredients, you know, eggs, flour, whatever. And it will analyze that picture and give you recipes of things to make based on the items in that picture. I mean, that's wild. That's amazing. Yeah. So the notes here say that it's capable of handling over 25,000 words of text, allowing for use cases like long-form content creation, extended conversations, and document search and analysis. Do you know what the, is there a limit either on the free or the paid version? Is there a limit to the number of characters or words you can put in your query? Yeah. Well, from what I've seen, there is a limit to what you can put into your query. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but 
I mean, this is really pretty amazing. You know, you just give it a Wikipedia article, give it a link to that article and, you know, say, okay, I want you to find, if it's an article about a person, say, tell me about this person's most important accomplishments. And ChatGPT will look through the Wikipedia article for you and synthesize the person's most important accomplishments based on that article. Yeah. Pretty amazing. It is amazing. When I first encountered it, I thought, okay, this is just a fancy Google, right? It's going to be a little bit more powerful than Google in the sense of being able to ask it questions like that. You know, give me Michael Jordan's you know, accomplishments in his basketball career or what's the highest mountain in Brazil or, you know, uh, any number of those kinds of questions. But it has a lot more power than that and a lot more potential from that. I know people who are coders, they write code for a living, who are using it to help them write code. Oh, yeah. It can write code. There is concern that it could actually write, you know, computer viruses (laughs) and unleash those on the world. Yeah. I I mean, really Tremendous possibilities here, both good and bad. And, you know, what we've also been hearing is that we know that it's capable now of passing the bar exam, passing business school exams, the GMAT. I mean, really crazy. Yeah. One of the most positive cases I heard about was a person who had a pet, a dog, who was suffering from some symptoms and, and, uh, you know, some kind of disease. And the person went to a vet and said, you know, what, you know, can you help me out here? And the vet prescribed some course of action, maybe some medications didn't work. Then went to another vet, didn't work. And then he described what was going on with his dog into chat GPT. Yeah. And the algorithm came up with these, this different list, list of ailments, some of which, which, which were being addressed by the, the current vets that were, addressing the dog's problems. But then it had another one that was like, that they had skipped over. They, they hadn't even thought about the, the The two vets that he'd gone to before hadn't even thought about those symptoms coming to this, this potential diagnosis. And it was correct. And before you know it, the dog was doing a lot better with the correct diagnosis. And, and you can see that enormous potential for healthcare in the human realm, right? Oh, Where yeah. Just really accessing all the different information or diagnostic tools out there to be able to say, well, okay, this is what you're really, this is potentially what you're really suffering from and the, and the solutions for it. I, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit, Mike. You know, what are people saying today about ChatGPT? We just talked about all the crazy things it can do. But, you know, one of the, the things that we noted is that in an article in Forbes, it says generative AI will transform medicine as we know it. And the idea is exactly like what you were saying, except just for people. AI can use these predictive analytics, and the thought is it may eventually surpass a human physician's ability to actually diagnose illnesses. Not that it's going to do the surgery, you know, you still need your human physicians, but it can be a fantastic tool in synthesizing information and doing so objectively. Yeah. And and I think that's really powerful. And the other thing, too, that the article points out is that it can actually provide 24-7 medical assistance. So you need help in the middle of the night? Well, maybe you go to ChatGPT, just type in symptoms you're having, and maybe it can at least direct you what to do. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's powerful stuff. Everything you mentioned there takes us off into lots of different branches we could discuss. One of them is just the, the whole idea of, you mentioned that we still need the human surgeon. Well, would we? I mean, there there are... If you, if you combine this kind of technology with robotics, and there are certainly lots of surgeries that are being done today with the assistance of robotics. I don't know if there's any real surgeon or surgery that's 
actually being done today purely by a machine, right? Oh, no, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, eventually when robotics continues to evolve, yeah, I guess you could, chat GPT could just manage your entire healthcare journey from doctor's office all the way to uh, the operating table. So that's one of the big fears, right? It's going to eliminate yeah. jobs for surgeons or doctors, right? Or, or, or the big, one of the biggest things that comes up in these conversations or evaluating any new technology and this is from time immemorial. I mean, I, I have examples going back thousands of years of people being fearful about some new technology. And one of the biggest ones is always, well, it's going to eliminate jobs. It, you know, this technology is going to you know, keep people from doing, having to do this anymore. The, the technology itself is going to do the job. And so we don't need a, pe- a person to do the job. So we're losing jobs. Yeah. We hear that from politicians a lot. There was also an article in Business Insider the title was chat gpt may be coming for our jobs you know how much more ominous can you get yeah but the idea is that like you mentioned mike now that it can help with coding you know maybe entry level coders may not actually be needed as much because you can just use these ai generative tools other things like paralegals marketers more entry level financial analysts a lot of discussion out there that a lot of these roles might not need to be done by human beings anymore and so that creates this panic that we're seeing. Absolutely. But as I said, I mean, that, that's, that's always been the, the fear for new technology. And to my knowledge, uh, there's never been a case of a new technology that was really adopted. I mean, a, a successful new technology that was adopted that eliminate jobs in net. Certainly, new technology can eliminate jobs. That is, the, those of us who are familiar uh, with the history of capitalism and of the journaling about capitalism that's gone on is you know, the, the term creative destruction, which is, was coined by a guy named Joseph Schumpeter. Realize that's what happens is, you know, when you have a free market, when you have people able to trade with each other and to innovate and then improve upon each other's innovations, then you end up having that kind of improvement, that kind of innovation that goes on that says, okay, now we don't need this anymore. And that means that certain kinds of jobs can be eliminated entirely or reduced quite a bit, but on net actually increases the number of jobs. I mean, with classic example, people, this is like a cliche, but people talk about the horse and buggy, right? You know, Henry Ford created the didn't create the, the internal combustion engine, but really, really perfected the whole idea of mass production, assembly line type of methodology. And that all of a sudden created less demand for horses and buggies in terms of a, a transportation modality. And therefore, anybody who's in the ho- horse and buggy industry either lost their job or, or had quite a bit less demand for what they were doing. But think of all the new jobs that were made in the automotive industry are all supporting you know, our transportation uh, through uh, automobiles, uh, it's been massive. So, and again, I don't, I don't think that you could point to one case of a successful technology truly eliminating jobs on a net basis. Well, no, and I think just look at farming in the United States. At the founding of the Republic, everybody's a farmer pretty much, right? Yep. And that's very labor intensive. It takes a whole family to do it. Now, what, I think it's 3% of our economy or, or something like that, or 3% of the workforce. I mean... I think it's a little bit less than that now. A little I mean, bit less than that. And somehow there's still jobs for the rest of us. We're all doing other things. And yeah, there's fewer farming jobs than there would be without the tractors and the great sprinklers that, you know, and I don't even know how all those things work these days, but it's amazing. Well, and that's another example. I mean, this is a sidelight, but the, that's another example. I mean, people think of like John Deere as a tractor company. But anymore, they're being categorized as sort of a technology company. They're, right. they're one of the pr- foremost users of, 
of uh, GPS technology and self-driving tractors and, and using the, the ability to, to map out terrain and be able to say, okay, what's the most efficient way to use this land to get the, the best crop production? You know, John Deere's done a fantastic job of that. And again, that's technology, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, some people, the land surveyors trying to figure out how to efficiently plant crops or whatever, yeah, they might be out of a job based on this new GPS technology. But the great thing is that in a free economy, there's always work to be done. And now some of us can use our labor for doing other things. Yeah, and, and, and that's one of the major points I would make. I, I maybe make it too often, but whenever people hear uh, government officials or politicians who are pandering to them about the fears of you know this technology you know eliminating jobs or that we need to create more jobs as if they create more jobs as right. if you know government or politicians actually do the productive work of creating and innovating and and therefore creating jobs uh, that that's sort of a red flag and we should always warn people about that you know it's not it's not a question of jobs being produced it's a question of work to be done? And and is there a right price for paying that work to be done? In my mind, there's a never-ending list of things to be done. And I have, in one sense, a small mind relative to all the people out there who, who are fantastic entrepreneurs creating creating jobs and therefore the work that ought to be done by by machines or other otherwise, uh, certainly by humans. Um, but the, it does bring up this this fear that people have, and and I'm kind of you know dismissing that because historically those fears have never been warranted. But is it different this time? In your mind, is it different, Mitch? I mean, do no. we have do we have a, a new case where because it's we're calling it intelligence, and that's a whole other thing. Is it really intelligence? Uh, is it just very sophisticated calculation, or is it really something that we we would classify as human intelligence? Well. You know, if the question is, are things different this time because this is truly going to destroy jobs and they'll never come back because this is something so novel that it can do things that have never been done before? No, I, I don't think that this is different at all. And look, I mean, I think a lot of us, we like to work, but ultimately you want to figure out how to maximize your leisure time as well. And maybe this is another tool that helps us become more productive, maybe helps us work, you know, fewer hours during the week a little bit and have more leisure time, do things we really enjoy doing on the side. So uh, I, I think that's possible. It's a tool in our toolbox to make ourselves more productive. But uh, no, do I think that this is completely different in terms of being a jobs destroyer? I really don't. Where I do think this is a little bit more novel um, and I think this is probably what you're hinting at, Mike, is the power of this technology in terms of its intelligence and does that actually threaten our individual rights that we talk about on this show? And that, I think, is worthy of some discussion. Absolutely. And and you have a list of people here, you know, famous people, uh, people in technology and otherwise, who are saying that we should stop you know, kind of have a freeze or a moratorium on on this development, on the development of this kind of technology and artificial intelligence training systems. People like Elon Musk, Andrew Yang, um, there's been others. Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak. What's your opinion about those people and their commentary? Because they're, they're, they have credibility, right? They're, they're, oh, these yeah. are people who have, have an understanding of technology more so than I do. What's your interpretation of their, uh, I wouldn't call it fear-mongering in their case, but um, they're wanting to put some kind of freeze on this development. Yeah, 
I think, and just for a little context, they want to pause for at least six months on the training of AI systems that are more powerful than GPT-4. And I, I understand where they're coming from. There's a fear that these tools are becoming so powerful that we could eventually not actually be able to control them. And so they're saying, well, let's take a step back. Let's actually figure out how we can do the work on the back end to make sure that these are still you know, operating in the service of humanity. So I understand it, but I think it's kind of a futile effort. I just heard today that Alibaba in China is debuting its version of ChatGPT as a competitor. I think the race is on now. Yeah, There's no pause to be had. Well, and do you think any of those people who are making that commentary about, you know, stepping back, their thinking is appropriate. Do you, are, are they using the language we're talking about? Okay, is there is there such a thing as AI right now violating human rights? Is it rights protection or is it just like, oh my God, this stuff could be crazy and we don't want to know or we don't want to go there or we have to slow it down? Are they being precise in terms of saying, okay, here's a reason why this is a threat to individual rights? Well, there is one person, and I don't know if this person signed the open letter that Elon Musk and Andrew Yang and others published, but Elizer Yudkowsky in time, he's considered one of the foremost experts kind of in this artificial intelligence field, but he wrote an article a few weeks ago, and, and he does approach it a little bit more from individual rights in a way. But basically he said, if somebody builds a too powerful AI under present conditions, I expect that every single member of the human species and all biological life on Earth dies shortly thereafter. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, he's saying this could literally kill us all. What does he mean by the phrase, or, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but uh, you know, when he used that phrase, under present conditions, is he referring to the current regulatory overlay, the current law, or is he talking about more of a technology under the current conditions with regard to how we have technology? You know, I don't know, Mike. My interpretation reading that is he kind of meant all of the above. Current conditions from a regulatory environment, from just this, you know, almost a a technology race now that looks like it's going to spread not just between companies, but between countries. I think he's just saying where we're at today in development. And it is kind of interesting. He starts talking about how it's possible to create an AI that it wouldn't just stay in a computer, you know, because I think something starts getting out of hand, just unplug the computer or whatever. (laughs) Turn it off. Right. But what he's saying is, well, you get something that's really, really smart, it's going to be able to email DNA strings to laboratories around the world, and those laboratories will have the technology to just produce proteins, and that will allow this AI to essentially start creating artificial life forms. And, you know, that's not something I had considered before, so it's actually a little scary to think about. Yeah, this is definitely sci-fi stuff, right? It is. So how does someone who's a defender of free markets and a very limited role of government deal with this kind of thing? I don't think it's any different in principle. I mean, we have, like I said, we've had, we've had these kinds of technological races before. Maybe the stakes are higher. And certainly government has a role if there is, and I, and I think 
you know, you've given a couple of quotes here where uh, people can imagine at least where certainly such technology can be used and maybe used is the wrong term, can be used or can create itself. Yeah, in the physical world. Yeah, threats to individual rights. I I still think that's the test as to whether there needs to be government action and whether we have a a market. You know, it's it's interesting. You go back, I, I go back to thinking of AI being Watson, Right? I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with Watson. The, the IBM? IBM's yeah. Watson. And it was created to play chess initially to to show how this kind of thing, this kind of technology could be self-learning. You know, they could learn the rules of chess and then and then you know continue to learn from its experience of, of playing grandmaster chap, uh, uh, chess champions um, to now having it be something that you can say, no, this actually has, you know, potentially even a post-biological use where it's actually forming life itself. It definitely has some science fiction come true type of implications. But most of the time when I've seen those kinds of things being, like I said, fear-mongered, it's usually for the grand benefit of humanity. It's interesting. Italy has banned uh, uh, chat GPT. Yeah, not necessarily for uh, this idea that it's going to start replicating itself in the physical world, but Italy is concerned that, you know, when ChatGPT is giving you answers and synthesizing information, that it might be able to pull people's data without their permission. So, yeah, Italy just said, we're not going to deal with it. And I can't imagine that that policy is going to last very long. But that's one way to to, uh, deal with the issue is just say, you can't use it. Yeah, yeah. How often does that work, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, I guess, Mike, as a as a capitalist, how should we think about it? Is Should the government be looking in on this process, not necessarily making regulations, as we've spoken about, but should the government be watching this? Well, the government should be watching, and our, our system should be set up to watch any phenomenon that can be a threat to or a, or an actual violation of individual rights. That's the purpose of government, is to protect rights. And certainly if you have this kind of powerful technology, it potentially can be used to violate people's rights. And that's the context. It, there's a whole, I think, a whole philosophical and intellectual uh, and legal framework that has been developed around markets that oftentimes is being ignored, but there's much more that needs to be developed in terms of both property rights and uh, individual rights as far as this kind of threat or this kind of potential boon. And so the answer, you know, that, that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, the government does have a role, but it has to be narrowly defined in terms of is there a threat to individual rights? Is there an actual uh, objective violation of rights that goes on or, or, a, or a threat to individual rights on a mass basis. Well, and, and based on this article in Time, you know, that author is saying absolute. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think it is important to talk to or to listen to experts, people who are technologists, people who understand it much more than you or I, to get their guidance. It shouldn't be left in the hands of a bureaucrat in Washington. It should be this kind of thinking and framework for how to think about it should be developed by, by people who understand the technology. Is this something that you think would ever be appropriate for the government to ban, like Italy, if things started getting out of hand? Well, I guess that that's a phrase that people use, right? Getting out of hand. That doesn't do very well in a courtroom. And, and that's the kind of thinking that we should apply to this. Very strict rules of evidence and how a person needs to think about it. It can't be just like, oh, this is getting out of hand. Because one person's getting it out of hand, 
may mean something entirely different to someone else. I mean, is it getting out of hand when it has all these positive applications? So there, there has to be a process, like I said, a legal intellectual process to say. So what's your line? What's my line? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, what is the getting out of hand line where it's okay for the government to step in? Where there's, where there's clear violations of rights going on. Okay. So what would that look like in terms of chat GPT? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it, that's why it's fascinating. And again, yeah. I, I think that there will have to be a lot of legal and intellectual work that's done to say, and this is true of bioethics. It's true in the, in the case of abortion, where we need a, a whole new level of thinking about rights, life, intelligence, and the violation of rights. I think that these are still the same basic issues, but at a whole other abstraction as far as the level of thinking that needs to happen to adjudicate or to make proper use of the concepts in a legal framework. Because that's what, you know, ultimately people have to go back. I think people need to go back to, and this maybe is a good reminder. And you know, again, we can talk further about some of the examples, but people have to realize what government is in the first place. Government is force. Government is there properly to protect rights. Um, but it can only do that by having a monopoly use of force. And the question is, do we want our government to use force around this issue of artificial intelligence and how? And that, as I said, requires a whole legal framework. With things like nuclear weapons, for yeah. instance, you know, government has stepped in basically, you know, I'm not allowed to own a nuclear weapon. Yeah, and I think properly so, right? I mean, it's funny. I have, uh, uh, and I'm maybe perhaps more empathetic with the, uh, the quote, gun nuts, than you might be. I'm not sure. But this comes up all the time in the context of the Second Amendment, right? Yeah. Second Amendment is only coming after the First Amendment, uh, the free speech. And I, as a American, have this God-given right to own, keep and bear arms, uh, as the Second Amendment says. And while nuclear arms, I mean, does every individual have a right to carry nukes or to have to keep and bear nukes? Any rational person, I think, says, no, that's not, that isn't the proper... That isn't what we meant by the Second Amendment. Now, there's the other extreme of people saying, well, that was, that was during the time of the Revolution when you had militias meaning something different, and it was all about, okay, you can keep your ball and musket, uh, yeah. but nothing beyond that. And that's silly as well. Um, I, I do think, you know, I've, I've said this before, I think it's, it's a reasonable way to extrapolate and to bring forward the Second Amendment today to say that you know, each individual should be able to have uh, and, and keep and bear arms uh, the same level that a, that a soldier or infantryman would. That doesn't include tanks. It does not include nuclear weapons. It doesn't include, you know, an aircraft carrier. You don't get to do that. But, but that's not very precise itself. And so I think that's, but we're getting off track here with the, the chat GPT. But, but that, that should be the, the standard. Okay, is there a violation of rights? Or is there such a potential of violation of rights that we have to, we have to regulate this in some way? And, and I think that's a good analogy, you know, a nuclear weapon versus a semi-automatic pistol. Well, maybe we're in the stage of, you know, chat GPT just being a semi-automatic pistol versus a nuclear weapon. I don't know. Well, and that's what I was just wondering. You know, I think with chat GPT, some people have said, you know, the potential is here for so much destruction if this keeps going. You know, it's just like a nuclear weapon. We just don't even want to see where this goes, right? Just don't use it. Yeah. But that's not what you're saying right now. You're saying there's still a lot of positive outcomes at ChatGPT. It's doing a lot of good things. There's a lot of fear-mongering right now. Yeah, as far as I can tell, most of it is very exciting and positive. From everything I can see in terms of the applications that, are, that people are dreaming up and maybe even some that people haven't even thought about yet, 
it's mostly very positive toward human life, human health, human prosperity, human flourishing. And that's why it's an exciting field. But I think, you know, whenever you have that kind of potential, you, you do have the opposite case of, you know, potentially big problems. And that's why it's something we're talking about here. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it has a lot of great potential seeing some really smart people and their issues and concerns about it does concern me um, because I do think it is uncharted territory in in some ways. But that's also technological development. You're constantly pushing the boundaries of the possible. And and so I think... And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but but, but I mentioned, uh, this reminds me to bring up the, the whole point. I mentioned IBM and Watson. Yeah. And you maybe know this uh, famous quote from Thomas J. Watson, the CEO of of IBM in the 1940s. But he said, and th- this is a case of where those experts maybe aren't worth listening to, because he said at the time, there is a world market for computers of about five. Yeah. And this is the time when computers took up a whole room or whatever. Right. And he was saying there, there really wasn't that kind of application. You know, there's basically a few companies out there that really need to have a computer versus, you know, ultimately Gates' vision of having that kind of computer on every person's desk. And then, and then Jobs having the vision to say, no, we want to put a computer in everybody's pocket. Right. A supercomputer in everybody's pocket. So sometimes the, the experts aren't that, that great about actually seeing what will happen in the future. I mean, I think this is true. People were fearful about some of the communication technology that we have today, whether it's television or telegraph or telephone, the radio. Even Marconi, the the person who's often credited with the invention of the radio, didn't necessarily see the application. You know, he basically said, you know, this is going to be for ship-to-ship communication uh, on the seas. Yeah. Versus, you know, having entertainment and having news and having all kinds of right. other conservative content. Conservative chat shows. <laughs> conservative <laughs> chat shows. <laughs> talk radio. Right-wing <laughs> talk radio. <laughs> but there is always people who might be innovative and not even see the extent to which they uh, their innovations may change the world in a positive way. I mean, I even, I've even heard of a quote back going back to, to Socrates. Most people are aware that Socrates didn't re- really write anything. Yeah, Plato wrote it for him. Right, most of what we know about Socrates or about his whole viewpoint is uh, through Plato, the Republican, and and a bunch of other works of Plato. But supposedly, and I'm not sure this is really true, but supposedly Socrates didn't think much of the whole idea of writing. You know, he was he was very skeptical about the, the he thought that people would lose their memory if they wrote stuff down, and and there is there is some there's actually new evidence that even kind of says people had better memories before we had writing. We, yeah. you know, the history was passed on from word, word, but most of the evidence that we have is that people passing on from word to word and not having things written down caused a lot of confusion <laughs> yeah, right. and, and definitely violations of property rights, right? So they're, they're, you know, going back thousands of years, you have, you have uh, cases of people not really understanding the, the new technology and how positive, generally how positive it will be. Yeah, I think I'm with you, Mike. I agree. I think it'll be really positive. Um, But like I said, I do think it's uncharted territory as well. And I think that's more exciting than it is scary for me. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think think that uh, people who are for free markets and for individual rights and for people flourishing... Mostly they should be excited, but they should also keep themselves informed. They should understand, they should play with chat GPT and they should, they should understand more about the technology itself and, 
and the potential for it. And, and it, it remains a really interesting topic. I'm sure we'll be able to talk more about this as we see how, it, how, it's, how the applications are being used and developed and how hopefully governments using their proper role interact with such technology and innovation. And we also learned today, Mike, don't listen to the people screaming about job destruction with this technology. Yeah, that's that's probably the, one of the biggest takeaways is that that's that's not likely to be the case. I mean, even though you've got lots of people making that case, they've never been right in any case whatsoever. When we talk about jobs, and again, keep your eye on the ball. It's the work that needs to be done, and there is a never-ending stream, at least in my household and business. There's always more work to be done. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of. My Capital Idea with Michael Williams and Mitch Whitus. Hopefully you, you found this interesting and you'll pass it along. Keep sharing both our podcast as well as your ideas for things that we can talk about. We'll talk to you next time. 